So let's hear God's word, Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told him the dream before him saying, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. 
The tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O King, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. Well, this is its interpretation. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like lion, like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who, lived forever, who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At, that same at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. 
My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and whose ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. My friends, that is God's holy, eternal word that endures forever, and may we be blessed by its reading. You know, I was thinking... Uh, as I was preparing this message, if there was one chapter of Scripture that I was privileged to read to any leader of any nation or to politicians in general, if I was ever afforded that opportunity to stand up and read God's Word and pray over someone who was coming into such a position of power and authority over men, I think it would be this chapter. It stands out above all chapters in Scripture of a man who was used by God, sovereignly called of God to be His servant, to come and to take over the world, if you will, and even more, to come and and to bear a discipline on His own wayward people, Israel, to bring forth a purity of holiness within the midst of His people. That is Nebuchadnezzar. And and when you think of the psalm that we just sang, and, and you think of Nebuchadnezzar's boast here in verse 30 when he talks about how great Babylon is and how by his own power and might that he has built up this grand nation of the world, this rule of all of the nations uh, for his honor and his majesty. Doesn't that remind you of the rhetoric of so many politicians? When they start to talk about all that they have done when they have been elected to rule over men, who make boldly the claim that they're going to do things right, that they're going to make our city or our province or our country so much better than before. I often hear when they begin to talk about what they're going to do, they they often preface or interject in their speeches these words, Canada is a great nation. And I often think, okay, what makes Canada so great? And how would you define the greatness of a nation? How would you define the greatness of a nation that... When a virus comes in, it brings it to its knees. (laughs) We, We haven't been overtaken by any other nation, but we have been overtaken by a virus, which is surely the hand of God at work. How do you explain the greatness of a nation when virtually the entirety of its population was gripped with fear? Its economy shut down. Its social life brought to next to nothing. And its provincial and national debt have increased to catastrophic levels. I think 
Nebuchadnezzar is looking and boasting about how great Babylon is. A a nation that he has built for himself by his might and power and for the honor of his majesty. And he's just thinking, look at how good I have been in ruling all these nations of the world. And yet they don't understand that he has built mighty Babylon by beating down the Lord's people by oppression, by killing the foreigner, by killing the widow, by killing the fatherless. And they have done this all the while saying, the Lord doesn't see. Doesn't that that apply to our nation? Canada is a great nation. Unless you're a pre-born infant, Unless you're terminally infirmed. Canada is a great nation. Unless you do not close your eyes and ears to the scandal and corruption and hypocrisy. And especially if you don't toe the line on the current narratives of gender, environment, race and thought. You know, when when you read through Daniel, it comes back to this point. I know it's repetitious. There certainly is nothing new under the sun when it comes to men and their hearts before God. And one thing that this chapter does in the, in the midst of this study of Daniel is that it focuses distinctly on the confession of the sovereignty of God. And, and it's something to take note of that even this pagan king acknowledges the truth that the Most High reigns. But he doesn't acknowledge it until he has been brought low by God, by no one else. This chapter begins and ends with the refrain, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. A truth that I'm sure each one of us here tonight acknowledge with all surety. Our God reigns. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is established by God at the right hand to rule until all His enemies are made His footstool. Praise the Lord for that. But we see it in our day. And don't you question sometimes, dear Christian, when you look at the nation in which we live and you see the underlying evils that are still repletely given up. It was one of the the great contradictions of COVID concerning healthcare. I just want to mention one uh, that, that just came to my thoughts when we were talking today about how many operations, important, vital operations that people needed, surgeries for, for cancer and other illnesses that would have made their, their quality of life so much better, but all of them were delayed, counted as non-essential, except for one. There was one Operation that was deemed absolutely essential and was not to be cancelled. And that was abortion. Canada is a great nation. <laughs> yeah. And don't you wonder, well, if God is in is is this one whose dominion is everlasting to everlasting and, and from generation to generation, if he is the most high who rules, why isn't he doing anything? Haven't you ever wondered that? 
of a truth. One thing that this chapter does show us, and it doesn't come out to the very end, it shows us what the chief resistance in the world is to God's sovereignty. And that is the pride of man. (laughs) This proud heart of ours resists more than anything the sovereignty of God. It's what I like to call the Pharaoh syndrome. When Moses comes into the court of Pharaoh and in the name and authority of God says, God has sent me to tell you, let my people go. And you remember Pharaoh's response to him. Who is this Lord that I should obey him? (laughs) Well, he found out, didn't he? When his nation was destroyed, And the people were left with no food and a famine. And the firstborn was killed and his army annihilated. And Israel didn't lift a finger. Now that's the marvelous thought. The pride of man standing against the sovereignty of God. And it also shows us, and I think this is where it gives us hope in our generation and time, is we are reading here what Nebuchadnezzar finally got to see, what God does to those who in their pride stand against them. He resists them. And that is a measure of the truth that's here before us. This chapter is unique as well for a few other reasons. It's unique in that as it's written in the Aramaic, it's written in the first person narrative of Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking and addressing and saying things. We would not account him as a prophet. (laughs) And yet it was deemed necessary by the Holy Spirit that we hear what the king has to say to what? To all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. We might think, and I like to think more kingdom-mindedness, we might think that Nebuchadnezzar is speaking to his kingdom, (laughs) but I can't help but think that he's speaking to the church. Again, we come to Revelation. And what do we hear that Jesus Christ is at work doing in every generation on this earth? He is at work in securing for Himself a kingdom. From what? From all peoples, nations, and languages. And as much as we might think that Nebuchadnezzar is speaking to the world and, or to his kingdom, I believe he is speaking And the Spirit is using these words to speak to the church. A church that is in bondage under this this king. A church that has suffered for the sake of this king to build up a kingdom for his own honor and majesty. Now again, apply that to Canada. And to the church that's here. You know, we... We're all, I think, in some measure and anticipating a new uh, leader of the Conservative Party. Whoever it is, I, I hope they do well. I hope they do make changes. But they're not going to save Canada. <laughs> Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. 
And above all, we as the church and we as God's people have to understand that verse isn't simply applying to a nation that they start to do things better or they act a little more righteously. It's speaking to the church. The righteousness of God's people. And the holiness of God's church and kingdom here on earth is what will lift up a nation before God. And I think in some ways that message is being conveyed here to Israel as they would have been the ones to read this and as they would have been the ones to read these verses of Nebuchadnezzar's speech when they were not under simply Nebuchadnezzar's reign but when they came under Cyrus and under Darius and under Alexander and under the Caesars of Rome. They would have had these words to read for every other generation that it is the Most High who puts men in charge of the nations. And we are His kingdom here on earth to show and to make known to all of the peoples that it is the Most High who rules in the kingdoms of men, giving it to whomever He will and setting over it the lowest of men. As great as Nebuchadnezzar thought he was, twice In this chapter, he acknowledges that he's the lowest of men. (laughs) Isn't that something? It's unique as well because we rarely hear a pagan king giving such grand acclamations to God. It's unique in that it's directed to all people, not just kings and rulers. Nebuchadnezzar is sharing his experience for the benefit of all. He's uh, assessing himself and realizing 12 months after this dream that it was pride that gripped him and that in his life was fulfilled that proverb of Solomon, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Oh, that our politicians would grasp that truth. Oh, that they would hear God's word. And it's also unique, and and I say this, I know there's varied opinions on the state of Nebuchadnezzar's heart at the end of all of this. Was he a walking believer in the kingdom of God? Or was he a pagan king who could acclaim the truth of who God is? Well, for all his interaction with Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, was still very far from savingly knowing God. Knowing God truly and truthfully is our greatest dilemma. That comes out in this. You look at verse 25, that all of this is going to happen until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Till you know the Most High. But in knowing that God rules in such a way, did He really know the one who was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because an incomplete, imperfect, unbalanced knowledge of God breeds an incomplete, imperfect, and unbalanced knowledge of eternal life. Let us never forget the words of Christ. When John 17.3, He said this, He said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the living and true God, and, (laughs) and what? 
and the Christ Jesus whom you have sent. And in my opinion, that latter part was missing yet from Nebuchadnezzar. He fades after this chapter, but he shows us the wondrous truth in which we as God's people in church can take to heart, and that is that God resists the proud. And we can take that to heart even in our day when we consider the politicians and the rulers of our land, whether it's federally or provincially or locally. God resists the proud. And He has the authority and the sovereignty to bring them down. God has already revealed His sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And it's interesting that when He has this next dream, who's the last man that He turns to? It's almost as if in his heart there's such a pride that he's troubled by another dream. And then to be sure, he's reflecting on the past. This happened to me once before. And what did he, what did he make of that dream? He, he built for himself an image that would glorify himself and commanded all people to bow before it and then was ready to kill In fact, tried to kill the very people who helped him to understand what that dream was all about. And in his intelligence, I don't don't think he misunderstood the interpretation of that first dream, a knowledge that his kingdom would come to an end. (laughs) That he would come to an end. And now he has this dream. He's still spiritually indolent. In the golden years of his reign, he surveys all his power and glory and what he has accomplished. And what does he say? Wow, I'm a great man. And his pride dulled him to God's glory, to the glory of the one who revealed to him the fleeting nature of this kingdom that he was building, a kingdom that was built on oppression. On oppression. And he shows here a reluctance to seek those whom he knows has the answer. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. He goes to all of the wise men of Babylon, the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and he tells them the the dream. And then you get to verse 8. But at last Daniel came. And then look what he says of him. His name is Belshazzar. He was given this name according to the name of my God. (laughs) That even as much as he acknowledges that Daniel is filled with the Spirit of the living God, he views himself as a greater God and his gods as greater than Daniel's gods because after all, he has conquered them. And they are under him. That's how the mindset of the pride of man works. Pride dulls us to God's glory. And in that pride, they often only seek the counsel that builds up their own flesh. God clearly... In fact, you wonder, was Nebuchadnezzar so dull that, that, that he couldn't see God revealed to him in that dream the very purpose of that dream. Verse 17... I'm going to do this 
in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest of men. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty straightforward to me, what this dream is all about. And yet He says, I need it interpreted. It's like a man who understands the the words of the gospel. What is one of the clearest truths of the gospel that we can say to people that God Himself says in His Word, that the Lord Jesus Himself says with absolute authority, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and what? No man comes to the Father except through Me. There is no other name given under heaven by which you may be saved. You say that to people. And what do they say to you? Well, that's your opinion. Well, it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar saying that very thing to God. Well, that's what you think. I'm going to see if my interpreters can do better. You see, the pride, the pride in the heart of man dulls them to the glory of God. And in dulling us to the glory of God, the pride of the heart of man blinds us to God's wisdom. Why was God revealing this to Nebuchadnezzar? What what Christian wouldn't love to have had not one, not two, but three such wondrous experiences with God? And here's a pagan man that gets it. (laughs) Isn't that strange? But his own pride blinded him to the wisdom of God. The centerpiece of this dream was this tree that, like in the last dream, was reflective of Nebuchadnezzar's self-image. Verse 30, Is this not great... I'm sorry, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. His own sense of self-worth, self-importance, blinded him to the true image he had constructed before God. And it blinded him to the truth that what he has built as a great nation was built on grave immorality and merciless rule and oppression of the most wickedness that could be drummed up in a war. Read Psalm 137 if you want to understand how wicked a man he was. And what God does in, in Nebuchadnezzar's life throughout this is he revealed to him just what a brute beast he was as God's judgment fell upon him. And God warned him. God gave him warning, not only through the dream, God gave him warning through Daniel. Do not in your pride resist my sovereignty. You would think that such a man would hear would hear the Word of God. And that wisdom of God. I couldn't help but think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 about how God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. 
And why does God work in that way? Why does God work in such a way that He brings to nothing the things that are? It's so that, in 1 Corinthians 1, it's so that no flesh should glory in His presence. And, and you know, that, that comes down, and in, in, in the words of 1 Corinthians 1, it comes down to speak even of our own salvation and of our own ability to be in a right and holy relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That the reason that we cannot boast in our works, the reason that we cannot look to ourselves to save ourselves is for that same reason. It is by grace alone, Paul would write, that you are saved through faith. That even that faith that you have to believe is a gift from God. Why? So that no man should boast. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, but of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What is the righteousness that you have that is acceptable to God? Is it what you have done with the works of your hands? Absolutely not. (laughs) Isaiah 64, 6. Even my righteousness, even the good works that I do are what? They're filthy rags before God. It's the righteousness of Christ (laughs) and your sanctification. Do you think in your life, even though you were called to be putting to death sin in your life, even though you were called to put on what is right and good in your life, even though you are called to walk in a way of righteousness where you are pursuing holiness, do you think you sanctify yourself? You don't. Sanctification, that that work of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ is a work of God and His Spirit. We put our hands to it by giving ourselves over to those things, but we stumble and fall. And in our sanctification, we come and we realize again and again, who is the one who conquers sin in my life? It's the Lord. Praise God, it's the Lord. Who is the one who spurs me on to holiness when I don't want to do the good that I know I should be doing? (laughs) Praise God, it's the Holy Spirit. God has chosen things to work this way so that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And we need to learn that lesson as much as Nebuchadnezzar had. Canada is not going to be saved by any man. Except for, of course, the man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are not looking at Canada becoming a great nation. We're looking at the nations of this world to becoming the nations and the kingdoms of our Christ. And He will do that work. And the other thing that pride does is pride, it not only is dull to God's glory and, and, and ignorant of His wisdom, pride also ignores God's warning. There is something here when Daniel explains this dream to King Nebuchadnezzar 
He pleads with him in verses 27 to 31. He says, King, hear my advice. You think you're so great. Break off your sins by being righteous. Get rid of your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. You know, pride does not like that kind of warning. What do you mean I'm a sinner? What do you mean (coughs) I have committed iniquities? What do you mean that I'm not showing kindness to the poor? Don't they at least have a meal? (laughs) According to the dream. This was Daniel saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent. If you repent, God's mercy will come and meet you. But you know, that is, that is the worst of it. Pride hates that call of repentance. It's one of the saddest things in ministry to see when you are in earnest. I've said this often, even about our wayward children. We are more in earnest for our wage, our, 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 our straying children's souls than they are. They seem quite content just to continue on in their godlessness. Like there's nothing to worry about. And as soon as you say, this is wrong, you need to be back to the Lord. You need to be repenting of your your wandering. You need to repent and seek the Lord. He'll have mercy on you. And the pride in their heart just wells up and says, I don't need it. Isn't that the saddest thing? And you see this with Nebuchadnezzar, with all that the Lord has given him. Is there even a sense of repentance? God resists the proud. And He does so because as, as we're reading this and as we hear these words, doesn't it just come and meet us this truth? God resists the proud. And, and we know, we know the remainder of that verse, don't we? What's the remainder of that verse? God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And we understand that. And, and, and this is something I again believe why this is written for God's people to understand. What has happened to Israel at this time? God has resisted the pride of their heart. God has brought them low. And now that they are in captivity and they're in Babylon and under the authority of this pagan God, God is showing to Israel, I'm bringing low this man who is over you. And I'm doing it with the knowledge of the gospel that waits for him should he repent. Oh, Israel, hear this cry. Church of Christ today, again, I'll say this, reminding you as as we've come along in this, God has raised up our Prime Minister over us. Not simply to punish a nation that has departed from His ways in graver measure today than ever before. But to address His church in this generation. To challenge us about the holiness that we are called to pursue and to live in this time. 
And in resisting the proud, we are to understand that this is a labor of God's grace. Even to Nebuchadnezzar, the the promise was there. You're going to be humbled. I am resisting you. And seven times will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules. Isn't that mercy? That your kingdom will be restored to you. And whether those seven times mean months or years, we don't know. Either way, it was a long time for him. (laughs) But it was seven. I'm going to humble you fully and completely before the eyes of men that you will know that you are a mere man before the God of heaven and that you will know I am the God who rules over the kingdoms of men. And how good it is to know that God works His grace in such a way. How sad it is that it takes seven seasons to humble our hearts. (laughs) Well, how do we respond to this? How do you respond to proud people? How do you respond to proud rulers? I think Daniel shows us the grace of Jesus Christ towards such. Daniel shows a Christ-like response to others who, in similar way, in their pride, resist God's sovereignty. One of the things we see immediately for Daniel in, in verse 19 is that he was troubled in his soul for Nebuchadnezzar. I challenge us, dear Christians, how many of us are troubled in our souls for our Prime Minister? We see everything that's going on right now and you've got a long list of corruptions and scandals and iniquities that have been promoted. Are you troubled for his soul? Daniel was for this man who destroyed the widows and fatherless of his nation to build his own nation. Isn't that something? There was no glorying at the downfall of this man, nor was there astonishment at Nebuchadnezzar's proud and resistant soul. Daniel was stunned at what God was going to do to him, and it disturbed his soul for Nebuchadnezzar. And not only that, he pleaded with the Spirit of Christ, King, Hear my advice. Let it be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. God's mercy is waiting there. (laughs) And I say that's the Spirit of Christ because remember Christ as He was making His way to Jerusalem and He was on that mountain and He could see the whole city of Jerusalem. Matthew 23. And what do we read? We read the Spirit of Christ. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Isn't that what Daniel's doing here? Oh, don't you understand 
what grace that God has waiting for the humble. And He pleads with the Gospel. God's mercy is ready to meet you. Think of it in in line with the New Testament sermons in the book of Acts. Peter and Paul, they did the same thing. They spoke of the sovereignty of God. They spoke of God in His providential, predestining uh, manners of ordering uh, the, the... crucifixion of Jesus Christ at the hands of wicked men. And yet that did not stop them from saying, if you repent, if you repent before God, He will have mercy. He will forgive you. He will bring forth His salvation upon you. Paul did the same in Acts 17. You know the Most High is the one who is ruling, has appointed a day in which He will judge this world in righteousness, and He has affirmed that truth by raising from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is calling one of the great commands of the Gospel. He is commanding all men everywhere, repent, and He will show mercy. You see, even here, and and I think this is the key to understanding this, even here, Daniel holds out the mercy of his God to this proud heart. Because that's the only thing that will cure and break a proud heart. They may not want to hear it. We may fear telling them it. It may stand in contrast to the wise men of the day. Satan may be speaking and convincing you in your thoughts, now is not the right time. My friends, pleading with the Gospel is always the desirable end to do the work of God before a proud heart. God resists the proud but He gives grace to the humble. We know that, that verse from Romans, don't we? Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. My friends, we have this message to give even to those who rule over us. Even those who are proud and arrogant in their ways. Let's bring them the message of the One who reigns and of the mercy that He holds for those who repent. Let us pray.